This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another interview on the New Books Network. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I have with me the author of a fascinating book published by MIT Press titled Lifelines of Our Society, A Global History of Infrastructure. This is an important book and an interesting book that looks at something that's really important to our everyday life all over the world, but maybe isn't examined that often. So I'm very pleased to have with us the author of the book, Dr. Dirk van Lach, to tell us all about this book. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad you said yes. Before we get into the book, though, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. So um, my name is Dirk van Lach, and um, I'm from from Germany, and uh, um, I have spent uh, several decades now on this topic of infrastructure. I'm I'm a historian of profession, historian of um, modern age or recent times or contemporary history, and. Um, I, I came came across this topic uh, in the 1990s, uh, around the 1990s, and uh, when we detected not not just myself, but but a, 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 um, a couple of people, how important infrastructures are for everyday life, that they sh- actually shape and form it, um, our everyday pattern of behavior uh, and uh, are uh, crucially important for for um, yeah for for economy for society for our culture and then we embarked on on doing historical research on it and um, after having done that for uh, two or three decades I just it's decided that I uh, that I should try to uh, to summarize what what we found out and 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 others found out, and so I decided around ten years ago to to write that book, and um, I had to prepare for certain conditions to be able to write the book. Uh, that took a while, but um, then I got it ready in. Uh, almost five years ago, and uh, and now I have the opportunity to also read it in English. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that background with us. Um, it's always helpful to know sort of how someone comes to a project. If we think then about the subject of the book of paying attention to infrastructure, what paradoxes do you think are revealed by paying attention to infrastructure in this way? Well, there are several paradoxes, actually. Um, so one 
major paradox is perhaps that uh, that you uh, quickly discover the importance of infrastructures for 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 our lives, but uh, that you that you on a daily basis really do not mind and do not think about infrastructure so much. So in a way, they are not very present. Uh, and, um, and this is one, one, one major paradox. Uh, and um, maybe this is what they are meant for, because they want to, um, uh, to set us kind of free for, for other things, for cr- more creative things to, to do and to think about. And to ask uh, well, where comes our water from and, and how can I get electricity and, and, and how can I manage to switch on or switch off lights. And uh, this always is cared for by experts and by systems and, um, and we rely on on availability and 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 supplies and um, and provisions, um, and uh, yeah, this is um, this makes our life more rich and more comfortable. And uh, this is one of the, the paradoxes that uh, also it's not very <clears throat> very much researched uh, by historians how how that came into into a reality. Another paradox may be that uh, we also do not take into account how much we are formatted in our daily uh, life by in our routines and our habits um, by by infrastructures. So we uh, are socialized into a kind of second nature world uh, that is full of provisions that we have to adopt to that we have to uh, that we have to to to, um, yeah, to to perceive intellectually, and that we have to to um, to use, and uh, that means that we have to to be uh, to to be on time. That we have to um, we have to learn a lot from cradle to 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 the grave. Um, that we have to, to learn, for instance, to behave properly um, when we go out and, and use traffic or, or, um, or drive by car or whatever. So this is, these are perhaps the two major paradoxes that are connected to the infrastructure complex. Thank you for introducing them to us. Um, They raise a lot of issues I think we will get into more. Going through then that history of infrastructure presented in this book, starting at the earlier phase, can you help us understand what role English canals played in moving the world to a globalised economy? Well, yes. Um, actually, I, uh, in my narrative, started with the English canal system because uh, it appeared to me to be a kind of a starting point for the modern infrastructure complex, uh, the basis for a diversified and uh, fossil fuel-driven economy that we are living in uh, until today. 
um, the basis for modern circula circulation and exchange of people, of goods, of energies and ideas. And um, in a certain way, the canal system, um, because it was used for delivering coal and uh, and and getting food uh, everywhere to to the British countryside and and to the cities. Um, and it was in in this sense, it was also kind of starting point for the for what we today call the Anthropocene, for it laid the foundations for our present economy, expecting uh, always to improve and to expand. And mostly, uh, as we have found out today, at the cost of natural resources or of at the cost of non-European societies. That makes a good starting point then for us to begin with. Um, obviously, the history moves on and we won't cover every single thing that's in the book, unfortunately. But I'd love to ask you about um, sort of a next big one, at least from my reading, um, which is about the history of the telephone. How can we see the history of the telephone as perhaps a great example of the larger picture, the rise of electrical infrastructure? Yeah, well, jumping to the telephone, uh, of course, omits the role of uh, railways, which was very crucial in the 19th century for the infrastructure complex and uh, for industrialization uh, on the whole. But, um, well, the telephone uh, especially is a, a good example for uh, a new device that was invented by very different engineers in different countries. And uh, it was kind of collective invention, uh, to, 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 say, to say so, um, by engineers who had very different uh, intentions to, 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 to reach with, with their inventions. Um, and it is also a good example for the fact that uh, inventions like the telephone or electricity often had problems to get started and to, to, to get, uh, get involved or uh, yeah, involved into the everyday life of people because uh, initially they, not, they were not admired very much. Um, the fields of usage for telephones had actually to be invented somehow um, by marketing um, and uh, um, advertising. And um, we have some research about how telephone um, in the end succeeded. That was mainly by uh, the fact that, that women adopted the telephone uh, in the United States, for instance, with a large, uh, large uh, spatial um, con con conditions. And uh, women were actually addressed to keep track via telephones of their husbands and their children's or to stay in contact with each, uh, with each, with each others, with uh, other women, and um, well, then slowly it became more common to have a telephone. Actually, 
Um, whereas before, that was a device used by uh, enterprises uh, only and not so much by, by private uh, people. So we can detect with the telephones the kind of trickle-down effects um, that uh, from very exclusive usages, uh, a thing becomes very common um, and becomes adopted by a lot of people because they had um, adopted a clue, an idea for how that could be, uh, could be, uh, could be good or could be necessary. Um, but adopting telephones and 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 infrastructures in general often uh, is accompanied by um, being instructed for a proper use, and we can also see that with a telephone that people uh, initially were 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 not too too sure about how to use the telephone and when to when to uh, or how to dial um, how to get a connection uh, in time how long they should speak um, in what way they should speak um, to to get um, to get heard um, the best and and how to use it effectively um, this is especially true for public telephones, of course, um, who will uh, often um, um, rivaled, rivaled to get to. So, um, yeah, uh, and, and, and slowly telephone became very common and uh, very normal to make appointments which, uh, which other with, with other people. So, um, in a way, slowly it uh, it became a, a normal device that very many people got used to and uh, could no longer uh, could no longer recall how it was uh, how 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 it was possible to live without a telephone. I think the idea of um, kind of being instructed to use something, seeing how it might be possible is really interesting to think about. And in some ways, that relates to the next thing I'd like to ask you about, which is why are or were high-end hotels, fancy hotels, such a good site to look at to understand the history of infrastructure? Yeah, I found out that uh, they have, uh, these high-end hotels are very good examples uh, to see how places of uh, uh, how they turned into places to test maximums of luxury for the people in offering uh, comfort for the people, and that often included that they were kind of avant-garde in um, adopting infrastructures and modern technologies, uh, new technologies, and uh, the. These hotels, who knew each other, of course, very well uh, on a worldwide basis, they often tried to outperform each other by offering the highest possible amount of comfort. And uh, yeah, that uh, had some good effects, of course, for people being able to um, 
being able to pay for this, but um, it also has some disadvantages uh, because technology is always replaced employees and staff and uh, and, and and people um, by by these technologies. And uh, there is also another kind of um, paradox connected, especially to hotels in context of tourism, um, because in these hotels, things are expected to look very easy and uh, authentic and very local, but uh, they also shall are expected to function very smoothly, very comfortably and, uh, and everywhere in the same way which requires a bunch of technologies and a bunch of, of infrastructures. So um, these are very ambivalent places to, to do research on infrastructures, their positive and their negative effects. And there are, there are many ambivalences that we, um, yeah, that we, uh, that, that we can see today. Hmm. No, thank you for that. Um, a very good illustration of the idea of infrastructure being so important, but we don't think about it. I think in hotels, that's not what we might be usually considering. As you mentioned, though, in that answer, um, infrastructure in some cases is meant to be visible, is meant to be noticed, right? Is meant to give you a sense of quality or luxury. And if we look back, for example, to the early 1900s, a lot of everyday infrastructure was decorated, was cool looking, um, was meant to be noticed. But infrastructure today, you know, pipes, um, pumping stations, telephone boxes are not meant to be decorated or noticeable. When and why did infrastructure stop being something we were meant to look at? Yeah, well, this actually is one of the, the, the miracles of infrastructure history. Why is infrastructure today often so sober, so, um, banal, so, so banal, um, and um, so, yeah, not, not very pretty? And um, one, one explanation may be that in the 19th century, infrastructure, the new infrastructure, the new technologies uh, often uh, were evidences of urban pride and they were modeled, often modeled after medieval or pre-modern architecture to actually impress citizens of uh, the cities and visitors uh, of the cities alike. So they were designed as becoming a landmark and uh, uh, actually a place to visit and, and be proud of. And this changed for different reasons in the early 20th century and up to today. Uh, first, because design uh, was too expensive, became too expensive um, for the many infrastructures that we, uh, that we have. Um, and then it also became, in a way, after the experiences of two, two world wars, it, it was clear that uh, 
two visible infrastructures was also very vulnerable, vulnerable and, um, and had a critical nature as target of terrorism or as targets during wars. And, uh, and an, another reason may be that, um, or, or that may be another reason for uh, the fact that most of modern in infrastructure has been hidden and has been placed in a kind of second city below the surfaces of of modern cities and 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 also in the landscapes. Mm. Thank you for helping us understand that. I think it's a big change um, to notice and useful to get some clarity on. If we stay in that early 20th century time, especially after the First World War, one might expect infrastructure and socialism um, to very much go together. But you discuss in your book that they don't fuse seamlessly. Why not? Yeah, this is another miracle that I cannot explain in total. But... Um... Part of the explanation may be um, that uh, usually one should have expected in theory that infrastructure and socialism would have matched perfectly because both stress the common good of public infrastructure. Both evoke an integrated and sometimes also an egalitarian society. But... Uh, both didn't take the human nature into account in so far that um, individuals also like to stress differences among among themselves. So infrastructure is open to different kinds of usages um, for the common good and for individual distinction. So when socialists, socialist societies um, who actually try to avoid the term infrastructure for, uh, for a lot of many decades and, and just adopted it during the 1970s and 1980s, but in the end, um, they implemented almost as much infrastructure as the Western liberal societies especially in the time after the Second World War. Uh, however, they remained, this is one part of the explanation, they remained in the first and the second phase of modern industrialization, which is heavy industry, chemical industry, and uh, electric in industry. And they were not successful, they didn't manage to enter into the third or even the fourth phase being marked of, of industrialization being marked by a turn to services and digitization. So strange, strangely enough, I, I also nourish the thesis that, um, that um, socialism in that kind as it existed in Eastern Europe uh, wouldn't have survived actually the, the era of digitization very, very, very long. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you for explaining um, that 
to us, uh, even without necessarily knowing everything, that's still really interesting and helpful to think through. One aspect I'd love to ask you about from the book is, of course, the idea that infrastructure enables governments to be involved in more areas of people's daily lives. There's obviously many ways in which infrastructure does this, but are there any in particular, maybe that are lesser known but very important, that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, well, it appeared to me while dealing with infrastructure that uh, is that that it is a kind of a substitute or used as a substitute for for other kinds of politics, for more open kinds of politics. Um, so governing people um, by technology, if you if I may say so, um, because infrastructure promises to give something to everybody and uh, to make life better, to improve prosperity and things like that. So in, in, in official rhetoric uh, of politicians, you, you often find hints to uh, where we have to improve, uh, we have to invest into our future by, by um, investing into infrastructure, by implementing new technologies and things like that. So this is a very common um, com common form of political rhetoric. Uh, almost all political parties are in favor for infrastructure and demand more of it, which is kind of strange, isn't it? Um, so um, I, I actually I'm I haven't I'm I'm not completely done with explaining. Uh, why this is actually the fact and how it came that almost uh, no group within modern society um, is opposing modern infrastructure. It, it, it still has this notion of being neutral, being good, being for the common good, and, um, and, and nobody um, actually... Um, arguing, well, infrastructure is also a kind of a, a, a subtle or not very open means of disciplining people and governing them and, um, and uh, placing them and um, controlling them. Um, there was a little more talk today by environmentalists and by... by um, People being sensitive for for modern ecological questions, um, and they have another view uh, or other views on on the infrastructure complex, uh, which uh, I think is necessary to to get because the modern uh, yeah the, the infrastructure complex um, that we are living in um, in a way yeah has disciplined us in 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 a way that makes it very um, difficult to to come out of it and to to reorient to um, to an, another politic politics hmm. are there any particular examples of infrastructure in that sense that you'd like to mention um, 
You mean new infrastructures or? Ones that um, police, that discipline in um, ways that are hard to get out of. Yeah, well, um, there are people talking about, talk, talking of kind of mental infrastructures and uh, what they, they mean is this, that we have been formatted man- mentally to expect things to function or, or things or, or the facilities around us to function and to be maintained by experts uh, so that we don't have to care for themselves. And uh, so we, we are, um, we have, we have been uh, educated in a way to, to expect things getting better, uh, things being cared for us. And, um, and this is a, a form of thinking that, um, is kind of calculable for politicians. Uh, it's very calculable for the consumer economy that we're living in, and we are so 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 difficult to get out and um, yeah to 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 distance. Um, so maybe that's part of the of the answer, but. Um, but but it's also a, a huge question. I mean, uh, a lot of environmentalists uh, try to solve and try to tackle. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, thank you for kind of putting it on the table, as it were. Um, another aspect of infrastructure you discuss in the book is that some infrastructure systems have second lives. Um, that do things after what they were initially meant to do. Can you tell us, take us through maybe one or two examples of interesting second lives that infrastructure systems might have had? Yes. Well, the basic uh, realization is that all infrastructures have some kind of uh, life circle that they have, that they age, they have a starting point, they, 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 they grow and they, uh, they flourish, but they also uh, get older and uh, get into decay. And uh, some of them um, have uh, certain reinvention as, a, as, um, yeah, as being used in, in a kind of second life. So, um, these second lives often come from first the durability of installed infrastructures um, and, and, and second from the past dependency of implemented infrastructures. That means that infrastructures once implemented um, continue certain traces and trails and um, to come back to the English canal system, they, it, it, for instance, became or had a second reinvention as, uh, as, a, as tourist hubs or a lot of former railway tracks from the 19th century that, uh, that are not used any longer became bicycle highways uh, in, in recent, uh, recent years or 
former water pipelines turned into tubes containing different lines, electricity mains or telephone wires or, I don't know, um, um, lines for, for, for modern internet. So um, there are a couple of examples for the reusage of former infrastructures um, that is, yeah, used once again. That uh, that, that um, has a second um, <clears throat> that has a second life, and um, people reinventing that. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I think anyone listening might look at infrastructure after this differently, going, "Hmm, what might the second life of that be?" or the thing that I'm, you know, the trail I'm walking on now, maybe this had a first life as something in infrastructure. So that idea alone, I think, is really interesting. Um, as we move towards the end, thinking about the whole research and writing process of the book, what do you think are some of the most interesting ways to you that infrastructure has changed everyday life? Well, as I've indicated before, um, also, my starting point was to to assess the importance of infrastructure for everyday life, and uh, and um, our, our thesis is that infrastructure has created a kind of second nature that that uh, fits human needs, that supplies basic resources, but also, on the other hand, makes us very dependent from these provisions. Um, and this is also a fact that alerts and alarms all people that care for human security because of its um, its vulnerability and its critical nature. And uh, <clears throat> what is fascinating is the almost complete penetration of our everyday life by infrastructures of all kinds today, the way in which we have been formed and disciplined by these facilities um, and their proper use. We are trained and socialized from cradle to grave, I, I indicated that before, to fit in or to catch up to these socio-technological complexities, uh, which none of our ancestors actually have ever dreamt of. No, very good point. Um, as my final question, obviously, you mentioned at the beginning, this book is something uh, you worked on for quite a long time. And of course, has a new life now coming out in English. Is there any other projects, any of your other work, uh, either current or future, you'd like to tell our audience a little bit about? Yes, very quickly. Um, my next topic that I will devote um, my next time, my next years to is, it has to do with infrastructures in certain ways. It's uh, an attempt to sum up situations in which the so-called kleine Leute were spoken of or appealed to, a term which is not easily translated into English for common man in English is not the same as a little man or little woman in German. But it's an interesting social figure or social type that has specific functions in political parlance, 
in social analysis and also in cultural representations. And I'm going to write something on not less than the last 200 years of coming to terms with this little man, trying to identify him, dress him, and also to, to govern him. So this is my next project. That sounds interesting. Thank you for sharing that preview with us. And of course, while you're working on that project, listeners can read the book we've been discussing in English titled Lifelines of Our Society, A Global History of Infrastructure, published by MIT Press in 2023. Dirk, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Miranda, thank you very much. <laughs>